our featured BBBWise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are Mercy Home for Boys and Girls, Learning Ally, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. To find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by bbbgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBGive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. We're in March, which uh, for most of America brings up or conjures up March madness to, uh, to take into account what's happening in college basketball right now. But at the Heart of Giving podcast, we like to call it March Gladness and to give you our final four, in this case, our final three, we're going to feature our three episodes this month. The fourth one was with me. We won't be adding that one to the compilation, but we're going to feature our three episodes this month in a compilation podcast to give you a refresher on the great conversations that we've had with these amazing leaders. You're going to hear from Shawnee Benton Gibson, the CEO of Spirit of a Woman Leadership Development Institute, and she was also the co-founder of ARIA Foundation. And this has been the subject of an award-winning documentary called Aftershock. You're going to find out from Dr. Gibson how important it is to pay attention to maternal health, in particular, maternal health uh, of women of color whose health during their maternity often goes neglected, sadly to say. Mark Shamley also is the Vice President of Community Impact at Lyft Orlando, and Mark is now working to be sort of the quarterback of community action and community development in Orlando. And His organization is doing great work there, but you're also going to learn from Mark what corporations can do and have been doing to to impact society. And also, in in this episode, you're going to hear from Amy Gilbreth. She's the president of PetSmart Charities, and she'll be discussing her passion for animal welfare, which led her to this amazing job and a career that left high-paying jobs in corporate America to support our pets. I want to thank Thad Housley, our producer, for putting this episode together. I get a call from my good friend, Tom Bagnano, who heads an organization called Creating Healthier Communities. And he says, I want you to come to an event that we're hosting where there's a movie 
that's going to be shown, a documentary that covers the challenges that black women have in childbirth. He said, I want you to come visit and see the woman behind the production of this film and hear her story. And I'm so glad I did because it gave me the opportunity to get to know our guest today, Shawnee Gibson, and to better understand not only her story, but what she's doing and what she's done to try to change this situation for black women in this country. Your story, unfortunately, is not unique. Although what happened after some of the critical moments in your story are unique. But I'd like to start with the moments that led you to where you are today, having to do with your own daughter's birth and your own daughter's. Well, I'll let you tell the story. Thank you. So similarly to you and what you shared about your daughter, my daughter wanted to expand her family and she decided in 2018 that her and her partner, Omari, who's also in the film, would start planning and working on bringing a second child into the world. And at the time, her first child, my granddaughter, Anari, was two years old. So I think they declared that they were going to start planning in November. They went on a trip. And when she came back, she was pregnant. So it happened immediately. That was a good trip. <laughs> so she went through her pregnancy. She had a, a midwife. She had a doula. My daughter was very fit and healthy. Um, she worked out while she was pregnant. She was a dancer before that. And so, you know, just a really healthy body. She ate really well, went to her regular prenatal visits with the midwife and wanted to make sure that she didn't experience what she had experienced in the first pregnancy, which was a C-section. She just wasn't happy with that outcome. So she wanted to have a vaginal birth after C-section, what they call a VBAC in the um, field of reproductive health. And so working towards that, she went into labor you know, I was called to come to her house. I was at her house earlier and was called to come back. She was progressing and her water broke and then the laboring part kind of ceased. So her plan to have a, a home birth was thwarted. And so we ended up going to the hospital in Brooklyn and I won't name the hospital here, but I had a connection at the hospital because I've been in this work for 15 years. So before my daughter died, which made it so devastating when she did pass, I was already in this work doing annual conferences, operating as an activist and advocate for others, um, and really speaking from my lived experience, because I experienced birth trauma with all three of my children in different ways. So went into the hospital. She wasn't progressing there. They waited to see if she would have a vaginal birth at the hospital and were giving her support to do that. And then decided after a, a day and a half that they would offer up another C-section and she consented. And it was a powerful consenting. It wasn't anything that she felt bad about because she knew that they had tried and so had she. And she had a C-section and we had our beautiful Kari, who's my second grandchild, a son, and born eight pounds flat. And we were all just really elated. But she had a C-section, so she had to stay in the hospital longer. When she was discharged, you know, got the traditional discharge papers and went back home. And then a couple of days later, she started to feel symptoms, hard to breathe, pain in her chest, not being able to go up the stairs after coming down the stairs. And we were talking about it as a family. And I asked her because I'm in the 
the field, you know, doing this work as an activist and advocate, if it might be a pulmonary embolism. But she said that they checked her for that and everything else. So when she went back to, she called the hospital, she went back for her follow-up to get her stitches removed. Um, She went for them to check on the baby. And each time she spoke about the symptoms she was having and they were like, oh, it's, you had a C-section. This is normal. And she and I spoke. So I reached out to the head of labor and delivery at the hospital and spoke to them on the phone about the symptoms. And they, um, the person said that she needed to probably rest and just have the family take care of her. And so we planned around that, but that was the worst that we could have done because she had clots in her legs that when you are stationary, they move and they grow and expand. And so the clots moved from her legs to her lungs and then they stopped her heart. The beautiful part about it, and then I'll open up the space or leave um, for questions if you have additional questions, is that I was there. It's bittersweet, but I was there for her last laugh. I was there for the last meal she ate. I was there to hear her last words before she went into cardiac arrest at her home. What was tragic and horrible about it is when the ambulance came, which it came right away, they immediately started to question in ways that are associated with what happens to folks when they're birthing while Black, when they're driving while Black, when they're just spending time in community while Black, is they started to question whether she was on drugs. And they asked us as a family multiple times if she was using drugs and had that, was that the reason why she was going into this crisis medically? And we explained all the pieces. And I even shared that I believed it was a pulmonary embolism, yet they ignored that. And then they also kept questioning every round of folks that came, the the um, fire department, the police. It was just really crazy that they were doing that. And even though I was in distress and I was scared for my daughter, I was filing that in my mind to go back to later because that's just how I operate as an activist. It's like, why are they doing this? But I also needed to pay attention to what was happening to my child. So she was rushed to the hospital after they stabilized her. And then she died within 15 hours after the initial crisis. And it was a pulmonary embolism. Mm. Wow. Now, after you were able to come to grips with the loss of your daughter, you didn't stop. You were already an advocate, but it probably ratcheted up your efforts. What were some of the Mm -hmm. actions that you began to take? And what was, I guess, in, in, in a way of saying it, what did you feel you were achieving in terms of outcomes? Were you getting further along? Were you having more success in helping people understand what was going on as you ratcheted up your activities? Sure. Thank you for that question. So I'll I'll start with the first part, which is the amplification of the work. So as you said, and I mentioned earlier, I was already in the work. I was already partnering with the Department of Health here in New York um, City. I was already working with agencies that serve Black and Brown folk and communities around their sexual and reproductive health and well-being. I was coaching and training and doing anti-racist work because I'm an anti-racist trainer and coach and advocate in that way. And so it was just about tapping the shoulders of those folks that I was already in partnership with and demanding and commanding that they step up their work and their efforts. I also was engaging in deep listening, listening for opportunities and possibilities for spaces to open up for the story to be told about my daughter and other women and birthing people just like her. Because even though my daughter passed away, I was very, very clear that um, her story is a conduit 
for prevention of these types of deaths, and then also for the amplification of the, the names and experiences and stories of others who died unceremoniously and without the access and privilege that I have, because I was part of multiple networks that told her story and spread it on social media and in other spaces and places. It was being talked about immediately after she died at conferences and in large spaces where there were groups of people and stakeholders that could spread the word. So I was humble in that regard because I'm like, not everybody is privileged like I was and still am, right? That I had these platforms that I had access to and these people who were in power and empowered to do something about this. And so the other piece that I will speak about that amplified it, and it's just who I am, and it's in the film, it's mentioned, and I I pray that you saw it because I want to make sure that people are clear that the calling on the support of the ancestors is super important to me in my work. It's integrated into everything. That's why we started this podcast with me acknowledging them and acknowledging those who you know, have been persecuted and had things taken away from them and the ripple effect of that. So I got a phone call two days before we were scheduled to do an event in honor of my daughter's birthday. So she died October, 2019 and her birthday was in December, 2019. And we wanted to do a community event. Once again, amplification of the story and the impact. So we were at a local organization called Weeksville Heritage Center. And it's in the film when we did that ceremony and it was a full house. But two days before I got a phone call, I picked up And that was all ancestral because art, I do not pick up the phone if I don't recognize numbers. I just don't because there's so much spam. But that day I got an urge to do it. And when I picked up, there was a woman on the other end, woman who's now the co-director of the film, Paula Iselt. And she was like, I'm calling because I heard about your daughter. I'm a filmmaker. I want to make a film about this experience of maternal mortality and its impact. Are you interested in this? I was hesitant only about it being her because she was clearly a white woman, or at least clearly to me. And then she started talking about her other partners. She talked about Dawn Porter, who's, you know, known in the field of filmmaking and social justice issues. And then of course, the other filmmaker who we now know is Tanya Lewis Lee, um, the co-director of the film. And she said they were both involved. So I was like, okay. And she said she was going to come to the event and she would film. And if I was no longer interested after they filmed, at least I would have a piece of film that captured our experience of the ceremony and celebration and would have that in perpetuity. So I said, yes, but the rest is history. They came, they were blown away by what we put together and the community response, the art, because we're artists in our family, the men in their, their presence in their conversation. And I'm sure we'll talk about that more and just all of it. And the rest is history because I said, yes, my family originally said no, but I said, I'm doing it anyway. And then they joined in shortly thereafter And then we made the film during COVID and now the film is on Hulu and it's broadcasting for anyone to see um, across the globe. So let's talk about that. Tell us the name of the film and how people can access it. Because I did watch it. Yes. So the initial event was called Aftershock. That was the download that I got that when a black woman dies or a birthing person, the ripple effect is known for decades later. Right. Because my grandbabies don't have their mom and we we still don't know how that will impact them. And then as the filmmakers were filming us and talking with us and asking questions in community and with other stakeholders, they realized that the name Aftershock was totally apropos for that for the film. And with me today is my good friend, Mark Shamley. 
Mark is the Vice President for Community Impact at Lyft Orlando. And Mark comes to this role having spent most of his career working inside of corporations to help institutions and people living outside of corporations or working outside of corporations. I guess so my first question for you has to be, what have you seen over the years and how has corporate philanthropy, if you would, changed since you came into the field to now? Hey, Art, thank you for that setup and and the context with your question. And yes, it has been a long and winding road in my career and a very fascinating one. I will say that I intentionally made a decision back, hmm, maybe late 1990s, early 2000s, that I wanted to be in the corporate responsibility or corporate citizenship space. And just so you know, there was no terminology like that being used at that time. I mean, we were, and many of us who have found ourselves in those roles working for companies came into those roles through various different experiences. Some were marketing folks, legal people, nonprofit executives. So there was no standard for doing the job other than the fact that companies had recognized that just like other parts of the business, there needed to be more accountability for the resources that were being dedicated to this work. And also allowing them to be able to be more strategic, they had to put in systems and structure and people who kind of knew how to navigate the organization, both internally and the partnerships and key stakeholders externally. And so when I got into this space, it was really about how to be more prudent about resources. It'd be called the checkbook philanthropy in those early days where there was a lot of reciprocity. CEOs would make a, a contribution to a particular cause that they were solicited uh, to support. And then in return, uh, they reached out and made the same kind of ask. And so there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. That's fine, but you know you weren't getting much value out of those kinds of activities. And so along came the sort of this idea of companies saying, hey, I think we could play a better role and a bigger role in societal issues in a way that connects with our values as a company and allows us to demonstrate that in the support of cause areas that made sense for the, for the company. You saw a lot of consumers orienting consumer products and campaigns that were orienting themselves around cause initiatives. And that just became the thing, right? And so, you know, I quickly spotted that this was kind of going to be a place for me to sort of hang my hat professionally and and did so intentionally. I had some opportunities to go into different parts of the business. And I said, Actually, when I was at Tupperware, this is where I want to be and uh, and sort of built my career around that. One of the, the major shifts, I would say, that started to take place early in my career was we knew that consumers were really interested in making buying decisions based on if price, quality, access, to products were all equal, they would make a decision 
to pick a product based on the causes that that product or the cause that product was affiliated with. And if you remember Carol Cohn from Cohn Communications, she was one of those pioneers who were really advancing some of the research that businesses were using to understand consumer behaviors. And so, so we knew consumers were like, hey, this is really important. And then you started to see employees say, hey, this is really important for me in my own decision-making on where I want to work, right? And I want to work for a company that is socially responsible in giving back, right? And how could I be involved and facilitate my own personal interest in getting engaged in a community or a cause area? And so companies recognize the importance of that around recruitment and retention of employees. So we were like, oh, wow. So you got consumers, you got employees that are interested in this area. And so we started just to sort of live on that two-legged stool at, at a time. And then the third piece that came in was around investors. And that really started to take off under this whole idea around uh, sustainability and ESG. And that's when you started to get the invested community coming in and saying, oh, this is about risk mitigation. This is about materiality and all the things that drive profitability long-term for the business. And when that piece came in, in sort of like, I wanna say 2010, 2015-ish or, well, or so around there, that's when everything really started to take off in this field. And then you saw just a complete different approach to how companies aligned themselves and structured these departments and sourced people, executives, who had more business acumen, who had more an understanding of how to navigate across the entire enterprise to find those intersections between the social issues and what made that part of the business run. Well, how did this become such an interest area for you? You mentioned that you, you looked into this and you felt that this is where you wanted to spend your time. And, and as a result, you're happy that you chose that field, corporate philanthropy. But what was it that made you look at this and say, oh, wow, this is, this is going to work for me. I like this. I want to do this. Yeah, I started my, where I was introduced to this space, working, believe it or not, for a nonprofit organization. Mm. And that was Boys and Girls Clubs of America. And I joined the team in the mid-90s at a time when cause-related marketing was really just taken off. And I was part of the strategic marketing group. And in that, we were responsible for establishing partnerships between the youth organization and different corporations and brands. Uh, we centered our strategy around program sponsorship, strategic alliances, cause marketing or promotion campaigns, or all of the above, right? And I was like, wow, I had no idea this even existed, where companies and nonprofits were coming together and thinking about ways to uh, develop campaigns that mutually benefited both. And I was hooked at that point in time, right? So once I saw, saw that connection, you know, I came out of college with a marketing degree. I just wasn't very inspired about just doing just regular work, selling a widget or marketing or promoting some other kind of product. But this whole notion 
of having some social connection, societal benefit was really motivating for me. Maybe it was just my DNA of how I was raised, uh, always volunteering, supporting youth groups. It's just part of how I grew up. And so for me, it was just a, a merger, if you will, of the idea that businesses play a substantial role in transforming the lives of people all over the world when done responsibly through prosperity and economic development. But if you also to sort of layer in this notion of social responsibility where both benefit, I was that was it. That was the formula for me. That allowed me to get up every day and be really inspired. A lot of times behind the scenes launching programs and doing work to benefit others. So for me, it was just a natural fit. I do want to ask you about the work you're doing now. I mean, sure. I, I'm really fascinated by by the work you're doing as vice president for impact for Lyft Orlando. Yeah. And how that sort of aligns with everything else you've done and what you hope to accomplish in that role. So it seems like Lyft Orlando is a is a 501c3 mission-based organization, right? They focus or we focus, I should say, on a place-based approach to investing in communities that have been historically marginalized and disinvested in for decades. And often these communities are communities of color. And as I indicated, Lyft Orlando is a business-led organization. So my work, my all of my career has been sort of in this intersection between society and business. And what Lyft has done over the last decade of its, of its existence is to focus on a footprint of a geographical location in a city and concentrate its resources and attention around housing, providing affordable housing, cradle to career education, long-term economic viability, and health and wellness programs. And so around those four pillars, what we do is leverage resources and partnerships on behalf of the residents of that community, because what we do for the community without the community, we do against the community. And so it's an important sort of mindset for us, right? To say, we don't do this work without your voices of the community. We are here to provide resources, to address all of the injustices that have taken place over time and demonstrate not only to the community of Central Florida, but the surrounding areas that you can focus on a particular area and you could bring in principles that you see in business around measurement and accountability and investment of resources, and you can change the systematic approach that put that community in that current state, you could change that for the better. And so for me, this is like a complete like progression, if you will, like it's part of the continuum of the work that I did running a social responsibility department for a company, leading an organization, representing practitioners doing that work and helping to educate and support those executives doing that work to landing with a mission-based organization 
who is focusing on real transformation uh, through sustained approach and helping to uh, evolve and change a community for the better. And so for me, it just seemed like a no-brainer, right? When I had the opportunity to uh, consider this next phase in my life, I said, I wanted to be somewhere where I could make a difference. I wanted to be somewhere where I could see the sort of fruits of my labor in the lives of people and ultimately have the stories to talk about transformation. And so this just is, I'm just completely thrilled to be part of the mission of this organization because it lines so much well with the work that I've done previously and the skill sets and the relationships and ultimately the work that we're gonna be doing going forward. Today, we're gonna to speak with Amy Gilbreth. Amy is the president of PetSmart Charities. What was it for you that said animals? You, you Maybe you had them when you were growing up. I don't know, but I, I don't know if it's something unique about people who work supporting animals or if it's just part of our human orientation to help things in general. I'm just curious what you think about that. Really great question. You know, I can only speak for myself and some of my colleagues and people I see. I do think that there are folks who are genuinely interested in helping animals, like some people are genuinely interested in helping children because they are voiceless. They cannot advocate for themselves. So I do think that that is some of the appeal for some people. I would say for me, I had animals growing up and I had the experience of how they enriched my life. And so when I think about the way we help animals at PetSmart Charities, it's about helping animals as a member of the human family. And it's about the human-animal bond. And I knew this intuitively even as a kid. And now we have all the research to validate how wonderful pets are for our physical and emotional and mental well-being. And something like 70% of U.S. households have pets. So the human-animal bond is something that is widespread. And one of the things that we see and one of the reasons we do the work that we do is that sometimes people who have the least in a way benefit the most from having a pet. As an example, many seniors in the U.S. live alone. And so if they have a pet, that pet is sometimes the only consistent source of love and companionship in their life. And we now have the research to show that for seniors who have a pet, they suffer from less loneliness which is a huge epidemic among seniors. They are ambulatory longer because they get out and walk their dog. You know, they have more social connections because regardless of your gender, your economic status, who you voted for for president, you know, you want to talk to the other person's pet and you want to see photos on the phone. So it's about the role that animals play in families, in lives, and in communities. And it's just as much about the people as the pets. So... When you get this money, what are some of the programs that you're executing to support animals? We are probably best known at PetSmart Charities for our in-store adoption program. And this is another collaboration with PetSmart where they, as a retailer, donate space in almost every single one of their stores for adoption groups, be that a shelter or a rescue group, to bring in animals for adoption. And there are cat centers in many of the stores where the cats can actually live there until they get adopted. Dogs can come in evenings, weekends, whenever a group can bring them. So what PetSmart is doing is providing space and access to that traffic 
of interested pet parents to help homeless pets find homes. And that program has been around for going on 30 years. It was revolutionary at the time it was launched. Last year, we celebrated our 10 millionth adoption facilitated through that program. So that's probably what we're best known for. One of the amazing things that's happened um, in time over animal welfare and PetSmart charities last year crossed $500 million in grants, so half a billion dollars in grant making. And over time, less and less animals are entering shelters and needing help in shelters. So we have been able to start shifting our focus to supporting pets who are at risk, largely because they live with an under-resourced family. So we have a whole other part of our portfolio we're working to make veterinary care more accessible and affordable. We're working to fight pet hunger because what people don't think about is that when a family is food insecure, they're probably also struggling to feed their pet. So we have a huge partnership with Meals on Wheels America, with Feeding America. We're trying to make sure that pet food is available in those human food support systems so that the whole family can can be fed. And then disaster response. You know, you don't necessarily think about this, but when someone has to evacuate from a hurricane or from a wildfire, the pet is part of their family. They need to bring their pet with them. But there are challenges with that. Not all shelters accept pets. Not all hotels accept pets. Transportation is more challenging with pets. So we give disaster response grants to local organizations who are first responders. And we also have a huge partnership with the American Red Cross, where we are working with them to integrate pets as members of the family in all of their systems and processes. So that's the part that we're probably less well known for is once the pet has a home, we'd like them to be able to stay in that home, even if that family has some hard times. But in your case, what would you say is the thing that you're trying to accomplish the most that gives you the most satisfaction? I love this question. And one of the things that we find very clearly in the work that we do with animal welfare is that there is an inextricable link to poverty. People struggle to provide to their much-loved pets the way they would like to because they struggle to provide to themselves. And the reality in our country is that we have chosen systems and structures and we have values that allow for systemic poverty. And anyone in almost any sector of nonprofit or philanthropy is ultimately up against that issue. And that is an enormous issue that no one organization or institution can solve. You know, that is a multi-trillion dollar issue. And sometimes that can feel really daunting because getting to that end game is going to require all of us, all of our institutions. So we do our little bit along the way and we take one thing at a time. And it's very gratifying to me to see that after 30 or 40 years of hard work in the actual shelter system for animals, we're in a much better place. We're not done, but we're in a much better place. And then to contextualize it as it didn't take three or four years to get there, it took 30 or 40 years to get there. So I'm really excited about the investments we are making in our access to veterinary care programs. And we are also clear that maybe in 10 years, we'll be starting to make a dent. And maybe in 30 or 40 years, we'll be in a much better place. But we know we can do it. And we know it's worth sticking with. And it's actually, to me, exciting in a way to be up against the problem that feels impossible. I mean, the gap to getting pets who don't get veterinary care, veterinary care is a $20 billion a year problem. 
And we're a big funder, but we're not that big. <laughs> but that is an exciting and worthwhile windmill to tilt at for me. Because if we don't, who will? And it's it's got to get done. And it's solvable. There's, there's $20, there's $20 billion in the world to solve that, right? There's $20 billion out there somewhere. You may not have it all, but in collaboration with others, it's a problem that's solvable. And so that's that's nice to think about too, right? That's nice to think about, right? Well, it's also, you know, if we designed different care delivery systems, maybe it would be a $10 billion a year program. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So there are lots of ways to come at it. And that 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 is, if I can make a pitch to your listeners, the need for really creative minds in nonprofit and philanthropy is bigger than ever. And so I think some people sometimes have the perception that if you're going to work in this field, it's because you're led by your heart. And of course, we want people in this field with heart. But there's also so much opportunity for changing systems and being creative and innovation. Like, yeah, the tech sector may be appealing, but come use that skill set here. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our edition of March Gladness at the Heart of Giving podcast. And for those of you who are listening in for the first time, I hope you'll subscribe to the show because it really helps us build audience. We don't have a huge marketing budget that we can push out to make people aware of what we're doing here. But I feel so good about what we're doing that I'm asking all of you who hear the show to share it with your friends and colleagues and subscribe. Because as these algorithms work, the more subscribers we have, the more opportunities there are for people to hear about the show. And if you want to support the podcast financially... We'll be glad to take your gift, and you can assure we'll put it to great use. You can do that by going to give.org and making a contribution. I hope we'll see you back here next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving dot p-o-d-b-e-a-n dot com subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms the thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests not those of the bbb wise giving alliance or program affiliates this podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved this podcast is protected by podbean's terms of service